Welcome to the Rise to the Challenge podcast. Join me today. She's a mind-body wellness coach, fitness instructor, spokesmodel, and the creator of the Happiness Boost. It's Amanda Webster. How are you doing today, Amanda? I am happy. I'm awesome. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm so excited to have you on the show to talk about your Rise to the Challenge. First thing we Thank like to you. all of our guests is go right to being. Talk about where you're from and what were you involved in growing up? I grew up in Missouri, like in a very small town, and I know a lot of people kind of have that dark background of, of something going on in their childhood. I actually had a great childhood. I, I loved my parents. I had a very good relationship uh, with them. It was more like my peers that ostracized me. It was more of an issue with my peers, but I, I always had that very big messiah complex where I always wanted to help. I was always trying to save an animal or trying to help the earth or trying to help uh, someone. So I, I started that at a very young age. It was always uh, very much a part of my personality. And uh, I, I remember traveling a lot as a kid. Uh, it was mostly in the U.S., but I do remember a lot of falling asleep in the back seats, uh, traveling from place to place. And growing up, I guess that didn't change much. The location just changed. Now it's an airplane instead of a back seat. <laughs> So where in Missouri are you from? Lebanon. It's this little hickle that civilization completely forgot about. I'm just kidding. It's, it's a cute little town. It's uh, about four hours from St. Louis, about okay. 45 minutes from Springfield. I'm actually from St. Louis, and now I reside oh. in Columbia. So I know. Oh, my dad had to go to the hospital a few times um, in Columbia because he, uh, my dad was terminal, and he had quite a few things going on. So a couple of his specialists were in Columbia, so I was up there every few weeks. You mentioned about the ostracizing your friends did that. Was it hard for you to make friends or kind of communicate with them? Or were you trying, or were you kind of being like solo in a way? You know, I always had that lone wolf personality growing up. And I don't think I really had my first quote unquote friend till I was at least probably 10 or 11. And I started making my, my really close friends when I was 13. Uh, that's <clears throat> when I met my, my really close friends. And it wasn't so much my friends that were ostracizing me, obviously. It was my peers that, <clears throat> excuse me, that I, I was never really accepted. My parents weren't rich. I didn't have the right clothes. My boobs weren't big enough. Whatever the case was, there was always a reason that I just didn't fit in. And time I wanted to I really did I wanted to be like the Britneys or the Ashleys and you know be on, on the, the sports teams or whatever but I just I wasn't the basketball team my freshman year but I never really got to play that much and it wasn't anything um, super serious I never I never had the qualities that made people accepted in like junior high and high school which in retrospect it's funny because all the people that I know that were like me were the ones that ended up going on to be successful and all the ones that were, you know, Miss, Mr. or Mrs. Popular for the most part were the ones that just, you know, tended to live more quiet lives and there's nothing wrong with that. But I know that that would have never been for me. I'm not a quiet person. So I know that I never would have been happy with, you know, just a quiet life. Growing up, did you have any motivations or someone that you inspired to be? I don't know about someone I inspired to be. I know that, you know, my parents were super inspirational. They were very good people. And my my mom, she always, you know, had this this very fierce, now in days we call it boss lady personality. She was just always very uh, powerful. And my dad, my dad was always that don't give up type person and prove him wrong. Like that was what my dad always said, prove him wrong. Somebody tells you you can't do something, you prove him wrong. And that became a big theme um, in my healing journey was prove them wrong, prove them wrong. I know that I 
watched a lot of professional wrestling with my dad. That was a big thing. So a lot of my heroes were wrestlers, uh, Diamond Dallas Page, who I ended up interviewing for my YouTube channel. Uh, we, we ended up becoming, ended up becoming kind of friends. But I had a lot of wrestlers um, that I looked up to because they were what I felt I couldn't be. You know, they were strong and they were outspoken and they were powerful. And, and in a way, it was all those things that I couldn't be. Uh, so I looked up a lot to, to people like that. I feel like I had more, um, like, characters in TV shows and movies or stuff that I looked up to. I definitely had a Superman phase that I went through where I was, I was going to marry, like, Dean Kane because I was just so in love with Superman uh, because I wanted to be that hero. I, I very much wanted to be that for somebody. I wanted to save the world. I wanted to save uh, the girl or the guy or whatever. I just, I had that complex. So... Uh, somewhere between the wrestlers and the superheroes. <laughs> I think a lot of people can have that sim uh, similar um, motivation or who they inspire by. And those fictional characters, sometimes we as individuals, we can connect to those characters. Or we can kind of see, maybe we want to follow that path. Even though we know their normal lives is completely different. But we see them all the time on TV that we're like, I wish we could be like that. Oh, absolutely. And in my teenage years growing up, you know, I did start developing different, uh, I don't want to say, not, I can't think of the right word for it, but I started developing different kind of like heroes where there are people that I definitely wanted to be more like, or people that I realized I was like, I think that's more what it is, is that we see the traits that are really deep down inside of us, even if we don't uh, speak out openly about them, those traits that are deep down inside of us, we see that in someone else and go, oh, wow, like, and we connect to them in some way. For me, uh, the character of Elle Woods on Legally Blonde was really big through my teenage years and quite a few people were just like, God, you wear too much pink. And it wasn't because of Elle. I started wearing pink long before that movie came out. But uh, I, I did end up adopting chihuahuas over the years. I had three different chihuahuas that I adopted. I did a rescue for chihuahuas and stuff. So, And I feel like in a way that had kind of driven me uh, to to be who I was, to you know stand up for the things that I, that I wanted to stand up for. But I, I definitely got my love of, of chihuahuas from, from Legally Blonde, and I just lost my last one as of um, last year, but that was my last little girl. Her name was Paris. She's the only one that I have uh, here, but, you know, I just, I always had a big heart for a lot of different, uh, for a lot of different causes, and people always chide me, like, why don't you care about people? Well, I do, and I do help people when I can, but my heart is just largely with animals. I think it's like it's a passion like we kind of we want to stick with what we're passionate about and you're talking about how animals is a huge thing for you and you're going to continue it and I think people need to remember it. it's not like that is taking over our lives is we're focusing on that at the time but we still care about other things also. I remember when when Chester Bennington from Lincoln Park had lost his life to suicide and I had a friend because I was really kind of grieving about it and I didn't know who to talk to and I reached out to a friend and I said hey I'm really struggling with this like Chester Bennington passed away and he's like oh that guy from that band like you didn't know him why does that matter and got pretty hateful about it and then said well if you cared half as much about the people in your life as you did some singer that you didn't even know and I'm sitting there going holy crap you know I've always been the person that when somebody comes to me I try to help I'm the person everyone comes to when they're gay pregnant uh, they're getting out of a relationship. I, I've always kind of been um, that person that people come to because they know they can open up to me. So it's it's just strange to judge somebody for the things that they grieve over, the things that they feel strongly about or passionately about. I don't understand why we judge other people's um, desires, you know, other people's 
motivations as long as it's for the greater good, I guess, as long as in some way it's for the greater good, then I think that's what matters. Are we, are our actions moving something forward in this world? That's what matters. Did you have a dream job that you were wanting to pursue? I always wanted to be a model, actually. So I'm, I'm really happy that I got to pursue that in a lot of different ways. I also wanted to be a writer and da, 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 my book is coming out uh, next year. I'm working with a literary agent right now. So my book should be slated to come out next year. Um, I'm excited about that. So I'm one of those people that I did have dreams growing up and I chased them, made them come true. Uh, I remember when I was really little, I was probably six or seven and they'd asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I said, I want to be a cop so I can have a gun. <laughs> and in retrospect, you know, people are like, Oh, that's so cute. You know, the kids. So I have a gun. <laughs> I have my gun. And right now with everything going on in this country, you could pry that from my cold dead hands. Like I, I'm going to hold on to my, my pink, uh, my pink lady. <laughs> And my gun is actually pink, just to be clear. That's not a metaphor. I actually have oh, it. Is. Oh, wow. It's a charter arms, a pink lady gun, yeah. So were you one of those, like, any path you were taking, as long as you were hitting your goals, that's what you were wanting to do? Like, you said that you wanted to be a model or a writer. You would do anything to make sure your dreams came true. Yes, I did end up developing that, but there was a long period of time where I didn't believe in myself. I didn't think I could do those things. I listened to everyone else that told me, you know, I wasn't tall enough to be a model. I didn't have the boobs to be a model. I was too, I literally had people tell me that I was too fat. I like for all y'all that are listening to this, I'm about 104 pounds. So I, I don't know where that came from, but I, I had a lot of these limiting beliefs, these tapes put in my head by other people that told me that, you know, I wasn't good enough or my writing wasn't talented enough or it was, it was too uh, poetic, like too, uh, too, uh, I don't know really the word I'm looking for, but that the, it just wasn't clear enough. It wasn't the cliche of what writing should be. And to all those people, haha, I proved you wrong. <laughs> But kind of like what your dad said, prove them wrong. Oh yeah, and that that really became a big drive in my life. Uh, it took a while. It definitely did. I, I listened to it for a while, and I let those people drive me down. But uh, yeah, it just it it got to the point where I knew that I couldn't die not accomplishing these things that I wanted to accomplish. And at the very least, if I did have to die not being able to accomplish those things, I could slide into the grave knowing that I gave it my all. And I did. So what was next for you? Did you go to education, pursuing it with college, or did you go right into the workforce? Well, to be honest, I actually dropped out my junior year. I was sexually assaulted when I was 16, and I just couldn't face that person. I just, I couldn't fathom the thought of going to school and having to see my rapist every day. And I dropped out literally the next day, right after it happened, went to school, signed the papers, dropped out. My parents were just in shock because I had always been a good student. You know, I'd always been very involved and I'd always done well with school, but I just, I, I jumped on, on fear and impulse and I ended up dropping out of school. And I spent several years just partying and spiraling and I, I, I didn't, didn't go right into the workforce, didn't go right into school. Uh, and when I finally decided, okay, get my life together, I'm going to go to community college, I'm going to go get at least a job so I can have some money, you know, to, to pursue something, even if it's just, you know, some little piddly job, my dad passed away. Uh, I was 20. So 
then it was a point of, okay, well, I have to try and get through my grief and try and help my mom. And we were in Arizona at the time, in a little mountain town. And my dad had made me promise that I'd get my mom home to Ohio. So I ended up moving uh, with her to Ohio. And that was just a big dramatic uh, series of events where we ended up homeless. So it was, it was about a year of just trying to survive and get things together. We lived in our car for a while, our cars for a while. Uh, we, we were in this really just scary, scary house. It was in kind of a really sketchy neighborhood where we had meth labs exploding everywhere. And it was, it was awful. Like it was, it was a really, really terrible experience. But as I'm trying to come out of that and get, you know, a job here or there, and I started trying to get back into the modeling a little bit, but there's only so much you can do when you're in that kind of a situation, or at least that's what I felt at the time. And her and I moved to California. We moved to Sacramento because I thought, okay, well, you know, I could drive up to NorCal or down to SoCal and pursue modeling that way. And I can go to college here. She passes away. So now I'm 22. I've lost both my parents. I didn't know what to do. I was in just shock and grief because my dad was terminal, but my mom was not. She was very unexpected. It was a heart attack, very unexpected. And I didn't know how to cope because nobody teaches you that. That's not something you learn in school. You learn all these arbitrary math things you're never going to remember. You learn all these dates of wars you're never going to need to know in your life, but you don't learn how to cope with anxiety or stress or grief or really even how to balance a checkbook or file your taxes or anything practical and useful pretty much. <laughs> no, none of that's important. But I, I started kind of spiraling after that. I didn't end up going to college till I was, let's see, I was in my like mid twenties when I went back and went to school and got my mind body wellness degree. Uh, I, I pursued, you know, little things. I, I ended up shooting for Playboy when I was 20, so 24 ish. I ended up shooting for Playboy and that was a huge, you know, modeling goal for me. And, but I, but I didn't really start taking it seriously until my like mid to late twenties. When you lost your mom, did it kind of play a big effect mentally and like you were just trying to survive each day because you didn't maybe know anyone out in California or you were just trying to use in your mind, my family's here supporting me and I'm going to try to make them proud. You know, my parents were really the only family that I had. So feeling like they were gone, I didn't know, as I said, what to do. And yeah, I didn't know anybody. I had just moved to Sacramento. I knew nobody there. Um, the night she passed away, actually, the the yard guy, like the guy who, the maintenance guy for our apartment complex ended up coming up and spending the night like on my floor watching movies with me because I was just a wreck and I had nobody. And I called my friends, but there's only so much you know you can do for someone who's grieving a loss that intense over the phone. And I, I did have one friend who came out to be there with me to help me through that. And we ended up dating. And in the long run, he ended up being uh, the father of my son several years later. And it didn't work out. Like, we weren't in a healthy position. You can't get into a relationship that's going to be healthy when you're not in a healthy state of mind. And I wasn't. I was in grief and shock. And I didn't even know who I was. And it, it wasn't a good idea to get into that relationship. I realized that in retrospect now. But yeah, it really was a, a question of survival. It was really a matter of, okay, hold on. I just felt like I was constantly holding on, like really tight, just trying not to lose control. And there, there was, you know, cigarettes and drugs and alcohol and pretty much anything I can do just to get through to the next day. Uh, there was self-harming on and off. 
and nothing was consistent, but it was, it was literally just anything I could do to get through the day, whether that was a line of Coke or a cigarette or a pack of cigarettes or a bottle of wine or whatever I had to do to get through the day. And it was a really, it was a really hard time, not just because, you know, I'm grieving the loss of my mom, but I was still living with her because uh, she, she wasn't handling losing my dad well when she passed two years, almost to the day actually, after he, uh, after he passed away. And so I was still living with her. So this is the first time I'm living on my own and I have nothing to fall back on. Like I don't have a home, like I don't have a family to go back to if I fail. It's, well, here's the real world. Welcome to it. Figure it out. And that's, that's a lot to take on all at once, especially when I did already struggle, you know, with anxiety and depression and, and these things to suddenly just be thrown in this world that I didn't understand very unexpectedly. Um, yeah, it was just whatever I could do. When you were going through with drugs, alcohol, and all of that, was this during the time that you had your son, or was it years later that your son came into the world? I, I, I dabbled in drugs as a teenager. Like, I, I was introduced to cocaine as a teenager, but I never was an addict. I, I used here and there. It was more like a party drug to me. Uh, when my mom passed away, this was several years before uh, my son. This was in 2007. My son was born in 2011. And uh, the, so, so I, I went through the first kind of cycle before uh, he was born. I quit smoking and everything when he was born. I, or when I found out I was pregnant, I, I quit everything. Uh, no alcohol, no cigarettes, no drugs, no nothing. It didn't kick back up again until 2017. And uh, there, there was some self-harm in there, like alcohol, maybe a drink or two, but nothing too concerning um, as compared to what I had gone through or what I would go through. I'm not saying that it's ever okay. It's definitely not something you want to turn to, but it wasn't as extreme as it was or as it was about to become. And in 2017, I split custody with his dad. His dad and I had separated when he was like 18 months. He was pretty young. His dad and I separated. So we split custody and I started falling really hard into the drugs and self-harm and the alcohol, the worst of my life, actually. It, it became a full-blown addiction at that point, like full-blown uh, daily use. And I never used around him and I was never high around him and I never, he never saw any of my self-harm uh, scars or anything. But, you know, when he's going to school and with his dad, at least kind of plenty, he spent 50% of the time with his dad, it kind of left plenty of time for that. But even in my worst of times, I still... I still couldn't do that around him. I didn't want him to see me like that. You know, I didn't want him to know in my mind what a failure his mom was. Cause that's how I felt. I felt like a complete failure, but I felt like this was the only thing that made me functional. Like the Coke managed my thoughts, the alcohol, the self-harm, it managed my thoughts. It managed the pain on some level. Were you able to continue to find like modeling gigs during this time? Or was it kind of your focus wasn't on the professional world at the time? Oh, modeling people don't even care. They'd probably give you the Coke themselves. I, I, I'd been given um, Coke several times in modeling circles and modeling situations. So it was definitely uh, not hard to, to upkeep, you know, that lifestyle with that sort of career because in many ways they almost perpetuate it. A lot of, of modeling gigs uh, kind of perpetuate it. And I, it wasn't the drugs 
that kept me from pursuing the things I wanted to pursue. It was absolutely the depression. The drugs were a symptom at that point of the depression, of the anxiety, of the struggles I was going through. And it was more that and my mindset than the drugs themselves. I was never to the point where I, well, I take that back. There was a point where I overdosed on the bathroom floor and think everything that my son was not there. Uh, But there was a time where it got really bad. But for the most part, I tell myself, it's just a line. It's just a line in the morning. It's no big deal. It becomes a big deal. It it really does. It, It takes over your head in the long run, whether it's a line or an eight ball or whatever it is you're doing, it affects you. That one line, that one drink, that one cigarette can be, you know, that the catalyst to something much, much worse if you're, if you're not careful. So talk about October, 2018 and your time where you were on the ledge at a hotel room. Talk about that. What was going on during that time? So interestingly enough, I had actually went into recovery for self-harm and cocaine in the summer of 2018. So by the time this comes around, I was already several months into recovery. And people will often assume, oh, you're in recovery. That means you're doing well, right? No. The problem was, is yes, I had made the decision to stop um, using drugs and stop self-harming after I met Mike Schnoda, the surviving singer of Lincoln Park, I had decided to stop doing these things and made that commitment to myself. But the problem is, is I hadn't dealt with the underlying reason of why I had those, those vices in the first place. Like what was causing me to want to do these things in the first place or feel the need to do these things. And it, it had been a really rough road anyway, because in, in uh, summer of 2017, I was wrongfully accused of two, uh, legal battles and two legal battles that were that went on for a very long time like, like the one was I was wrongfully accused of a DUI so it was a very long drawn out case and it was something that I passionately was like oh hell no that's not you're not putting that on my name because I'm very much against um, drunk driving but I was also in a car accident I had a big fight with a friend I was having a falling out in a relationship so it's like my my close friendship was falling apart my relationship was falling apart um, I, I was dealing with all this struggle like legally and financially and um, I was a single mom, so there was already enough, you know, weighing down on me. And then once I stopped using, it's like, okay, well, now I don't know what to do because I don't have the drugs. I don't have my parents. Chester had had lost his life to suicide, so I didn't even have this, like, vice that I turned to since my teenage years because it had just been the music and and his... um, his legacy, his life had just been very inspirational to me and um, had, had been like a source of strength and, and courage. So when he lost his battle, I'm like, well, what the hell do I have? Like, why, why do I think I can beat mine? And things just compounded. Like when I didn't have any coping mechanism and I didn't know what to do anymore, I was in uh, Canada. I was there for a Justin Timberlake concert. My friend had, had filmed me there for a Justin Timberlake concert. Uh, and... I just remember feeling so not only alone, like I felt like lonely, like nobody in the world cared. I felt overwhelmed that the pain was just too much. The stress was just too much. There's too much on me. I didn't know how to deal with it. And when I went to the concert, I was supposed to have like this really good seat. And I know this is so arbitrary first world problem, but this was something that I was doing for myself. Cause when I was 13, I was supposed to go meet uh, the guys at NSYNC and I, I, my dad went to the hospital that day, so I chose to be there for him. So in my adult life, I went back and met them all. And this person just wasn't what I expected him to be, like not what I thought he would be. And again, I realize in retrospect that that sounds kind of silly, but 
it's what it represented. It was like, that was part of my childhood that died in a way. So now it's like, even this, this nostalgia in my head felt like a lie. So everything I'd ever believed in felt like a lie. And I remember, you know, I, I got up on the ledge and I was just looking down. I was like, I, I can't do this anymore. I cannot deal with this pain anymore. And I looked down and I thought, I hope that this doesn't hurt because I just don't want to hurt anymore. And I, I started thinking about my son and I thought this is what's best for him because he doesn't deserve, you know, a fuck up like me as a mom. And so for all the people that say suicide is selfish, let that sink in. My son was the last thing I was thinking about before I was going to jump. And the world just seems so dark. You know, I had this shadow in my head that was constantly whispering how terrible I was, that I was a bad mom, that I was ugly, that I was stupid, that I was a bad friend, that I was unlovable. I had this bully in my head that just was relentless and I didn't know how to turn it off and I didn't know how to stop the pain and I didn't have anything left to turn to. I felt like I tried everything and nothing was making the pain stop. And the only thing that brought me down was the cleaning crew that I didn't even know existed because I'd been there for three days and I hadn't heard hide in the hair of anyone. Um, the cleaning crew turned on their stereo just outside my door, which was actually kind of weird because I was in the middle of the hallway anyway. So it was a very odd place for them to start cleaning, but they turned on their stereo and it was breaking the habit by Lincoln Park. And I just froze and went, oh my God, like I, I'm not even a believer. I'm, I'm, I'm not particularly religious or spiritual or anything, but I knew I couldn't jump. I knew that I had to fight and that was in some weird way like this, this battle cry, this battle song. And I stepped down first because I had to know it was real. <laughs> I, I, I went and I kind of opened the door and peeked my head out. Cause I'm like, is this just, they say that, you know, right before you die, your life flashes before you. And this, it makes sense that my life would be, uh, that the theme song to my life would be some Lincoln Park song. So uh, I, I initially stepped down and looked just cause I was kind of, holy crap, in shock. And there were two guys outside the door and I had a little short interaction with them in French and I went back inside the room and just fell apart. And I realized as I'm sobbing and just pretty much screaming out. So I'm sorry to the, to the neighbors of that hotel. I'm really sorry that you probably had to listen to me for a while, but just falling apart was so therapeutic. It was so cathartic because I never allowed myself to just be raw like that. I'd cried. I definitely cried. I'd cursed the world, but I never allowed myself to just genuinely, truly fall apart. And that was kind of the first step to getting through the grief and getting through the trauma because I'd, I'd, I'd been through so much. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to candy coat it. I had been through a lot in my life and I'd never processed a damn bit of it. So I was still stuck in all of it. So imagine being stuck in being raped as a 16 year old. Imagine being stuck in losing your parents. And it's just kind of like playing over and over and over. I was watching Lucifer and there's this concept of, you know, the things that you feel most guilty about are the things that, that are very traumatic for you. It creates a hell loop. So when you're in hell, it just replays this over and over and over. And that's what it felt like. But it was crazy because the, the interesting thing about that is, is in the show, they say that you can step out of it. It's your guilt and your trauma and your feelings and your emotions that are keeping you in that hell loop. Do you think that that song that was playing, it was kind of like a calling, like maybe Chester was speaking to you in a way. And now when you hear that song, does it kind of have a place in your heart? Like the song saved my life in a way. 
Absolutely. And it, it was, it was really hard for me to listen to it for a long time because, you know, I, I would hear it and I go, if this song had not played, I would be dead. And there's no like if, ands or buts. And I don't know if it was my parents or an angel or Chester or the universe or what it was, but yeah, I knew in my very deepest core that I was meant to be here. And I didn't know why at the time, but I knew that I wasn't meant to jump. And I knew that, you know, I had to find a way I had to fight. I had to, to find my purpose. And I will say when I came down, like in the days after, I had made a pact with myself that I was going to give this absolutely everything in the world for one year. And if at the end of that year, I still felt that same pain, I gave myself permission to jump. Because I knew that, you know, Chester or whatever you want to call it had saved me in that moment, but he wasn't always going to be there. And that was kind of the underlying message, right? Like I'd lost my parents. I'd lost this, this influence of Chester. I'd lost, you know, everything. I was a thousand miles away from my friends. I lost all these things, my relationships, but I still had me. And I had relinquished my power in a way because, you know, I, I, I defined myself. I was like, I was a victim of rape. I was a depressed person. Like I was a person that had depression and I, I relinquished my power. And when I started turning it around and saying, I'm a survivor of rape and I'm a person who has symptoms of depression, but that those things aren't who I am. And I'm certainly not going to give my power to my rapist. I'm not going to give my power to this disorder because I'm more than that. And because they don't deserve it. They don't deserve that power. They don't deserve, you know, my, my, my energy like that. So you mentioned that you gave yourself a year. What was that mission that you wanted to accomplish in a year? It's kind of crazy because I just wanted to be happy. I realized that I'd never really genuinely truly been happy. And I went to a mental health professional. I went to a psychiatrist when I came back um, from Canada. And I said, look, this is what happened. I told her about the, the hotel room incident. But I said, I am determined to change this. I'm determined to do anything I have to do to get out of this depression, to get out of this hole, because I don't want to wind up back on the ledge. I said, I'm tired of just being in a place where I feel that all you really care about is me not killing myself on your watch. Like, that's really, at the end of the day, what it seemed like. There was never a, well, let's let's make sure that you're living a fulfilling life, that, that you want to live, you know? There was never any, how do you take care of yourself? Like, how do you really uh, have optimal mental health? What can you do, Amanda? There was never a point where anybody gave me that power. And when I told her, I'm determined to be happy and I just need your help. I need to know what to do. She straight out told me, well, that's not possible for someone with your disorder because, uh, or with your diagnosis, because I've been diagnosed as having a serious mental illness or SMI. She said, that's not possible for someone like you. Like you could be functional, but you'll never really be happy. And that was, we were talking about the heroes and the Elwoods thing. That was my Elwoods in the bunny costume when Warner told her she wasn't smart enough for law school because I just, there was just this fire inside. And all I could think of was my dad. And there was actually Mike Shinoda, a song called Prove You Wrong. And that's all I could think of. I went in my car and listened to it because I was like, now I had my own motivation to, to get better. But now, like you've told me I can't. Oh, <laughs> you watch me, lady. You watch me. And I still didn't really know what to do, um, but I reached out to, to Diamond Dallas Page, who was one of, like I said, one of my childhood wrestling heroes turned like yoga instructor confidant. And I said, 
like, I don't know what to do, but this is what's going on. Like, I'm just, I'm feeling, I didn't say that I'd been suicidal, but I just, I'm really struggling and I don't know what to do. And he said, you did this to yourself and it's on you to get yourself out of it. I did not want to hear that. <laughs> That's not the advice I needed. I'm like, this is not what I wanted to hear. But it's what I needed to hear and it's what my dad would have told me. Because my dad was very much, he, he was tough love in all the right ways. Like, he wasn't tough love as in suck it up, figure it out. But he was tough love as in take your power back. Like, take your power back. You've, you've been giving your power to all these people. You gave your power to a rapist. You gave your power to all these mental health professionals, but you did not take the responsibility to reclaim your power yourself. And that was when I started <clears throat> like analyzing, well, what can I do? What can I do to, to have a positive effect on my mental well-being, my mental health? What can I do? What actions can I take? And it was, it was a process. It, it took uh, months, months, months to, to really get to a point where I felt like I was out of that darkness. And I will tell you the exact moment that I started realizing that I, 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 it was that moment that made me start kind of flashing back and going, oh, crap. I, my, my, one of my big things is toxic productivity. Like I am that type of person that I will have a to-do list a mile long. And if I don't get it all done in a day, I would just hate myself over it and be like, oh my God, I'm just lazy and don't do anything. And I, I was very much on, okay, I have 30 minutes to do this and then 40 minutes to do this. And then I have to do this and blah, blah, blah. I was going on bike ride with my son that I had allotted exactly half an hour for. And I will say when I was in the worst part of, of the depression, when I was in that rock bottom, I knew like intrinsically that I loved my son, but I didn't feel it. He could hug me and I felt absolutely nothing at all, just completely numb. And I knew even in that time, I, I would have taken a bullet for my kid, but I didn't feel anything. Like I didn't feel any, any happy or joy or love. And I remember we were going on this bike ride and my whole time I'm sitting there going, okay, well, I have 22 minutes. If we do this, we do that. I'm timing it in my head. And my son stops in front of this house and I'm just going, okay, come on. That's great. Let's go. Let's finish this. He's like, mama, mama, look. And he like points. And this house that I passed like a bazillion times, it's right straight from me there was just all of these rose bushes, like this, all these different color rose bushes, like blue, I didn't even know the word blue roses, I didn't know it was a thing, but there were like these blue roses and yellow and pink and red. And I just stood there and I went, oh my God, like I never saw this, how did I miss this all this time? And he comes over and he takes my hand and he said, je t'aime maman, which means I love you mommy in French. And I said, oh, je t'aime mon loulou, which means I love you, my little wolf, which is just like a term of endearment. And I felt it. And I felt that love and that connection. And when I started looking back, I realized, wow, like in the past few weeks prior to this, this incident, when I got out of bed, it was more of a cool, like, what can I do today? What can I, what adventure can I have? What can I get into instead of the, oh, not this crap again. Like, I can't do this. I don't want to do this. I don't, I'm just going to hide under my blanket. It was more of an excitement to get out of bed and a gratitude for the, for, for my day and for the things that, that I'd been given, even if my day wasn't going to be perfect or even if the day before wasn't perfect, my mindset had shifted. And I started realizing uh, that I didn't really have the symptoms of depression uh, anymore, of this serious mental illness. So I called my mental health professional. I said, look, I want to be reevaluated. And she just keeps reiterating, well, that's not possible that people that are SMI don't get decertified. That's not a thing. I fought for almost a year. I fought and fought and fought because I'm like, I want to be reevaluated. I don't, I don't want this on like my record. I don't want this label that doesn't fit me. And eventually 
I, I kind of went above her head. <laughs> I, it took, it took a while of going over her head and over their head and then, you know, circling about and it was kind of just this whole pony show. But, um, when I was evaluated in November of 2018, which was right uh, after the, the hotel incident, there's this thing called DAS, which is depression, anxiety, stress scales. And this is how they measure uh, like depression and anxiety and stress in, in a person to see how, how serious it is. Well, for me, my depression was a 20 and my anxiety was a 16. So for reference, 21 with depression is serious. Like that's as serious as it can be. And I was a 20. And when I had them reevaluate me, which was May of this year, mind you, right when COVID was kicking up really bad and we were all in quarantine and everybody was killing each other with toilet paper, they reevaluated me and my depression was a three and my anxiety was a two. So it, it, I, I realized that it was, a, there was a very tangible way to see that I had made these improvements, that I had I'd figured out exactly what it was I needed to implement you know, in my life to get there. And you know, the mind-body connection isn't really a secret anymore. Scientists are talking about it all the time and they've proven that trauma that isn't dealt with and stress that isn't dealt with can cause even cancer. Like it can cause all these different issues. Uh, and that's why we can only really reach our, our mental health potential if we're looking at these different areas. And that was my problem. I wasn't. I felt like I'd done everything but I hadn't because I hadn't really number one, taken my own power and, and done, you know, the things that, that I needed to do for myself. I kept relying on everyone else to fix me when I wasn't broken in the first place, a little lost maybe, but not broken. Uh, and once I really found these, as I call them now, uh, my five puzzle pieces of happiness, that's kind of the name of my framework that, that I teach that is the, the method that I went through the process that I went through, uh, just to take out all the guesswork, because there's a lot of guesswork. I had to, I had to really kind of, it was a trial and error process. But once I, I nailed down like these five things, my life really started to change. And my, my depression and anxiety was just plummeting. And I never thought that I would really be able to say I'm a happy person, but I'm a pretty happy person. <laughs> Were you able to, like the people that said, oh, I don't know if you're able to fix this, like your um, mental specialist and even Diamond Dallas Page, were you able to go back to them and show the improvement and the progress you have made and the changes to fulfill maybe some happiness now? I think Dallas always believed in me. Uh, so I, I don't think that was so much as a, of approving as kind of saying like, look, like to a, kind of a, a, a father figure, because he did kind of have like this father figure to me. And uh, being able to show him and have him be like that kind of proud papa, that was cool. But oh God, like mm, going back to that psychologist was one of the happiest moments of my life. Because I just looked at her and I said, don't you ever tell someone what they are capable of. Don't you ever put limitations on a person because I proved you wrong. I proved you wrong. I was decertified. I'm happy. I don't have these symptoms of depression anymore. And you told me that that wasn't possible. Imagine if when I went to her and I said, this is what I want, you know, and I, I really wanted to be happy and I had this motivation. Imagine if I would have been in that dark place and she told me that's not possible. What do you think the outcome of that would have been? <laughs> yeah, it would not be a good one. Yeah, and it was amazing. I actually got to interview Dallas for my YouTube channel um, talking about depression and stuff and I got to tell him about this and it was really awesome you know getting to share that and, and tell him you know what an influence he had 
on me, not only as a child when I was in my little DDP shirt doing the diamond cutter and everything, but, you know, as an adult that, that he had kind of guided me in the right way when I didn't have my dad there to do it. Like he kind of stood in for that. And that's, that's kind of the message I want people to, to walk away with when I, when I do share my story and stuff is that people are always going to put limitations on you. You're probably going to put limitations on yourself. I definitely did. I let everyone else define me. I let everyone else define my limitations or my capabilities and I believed it and it became real in my head. And, you know, the the depression was very real. I, I, I did have clinical depression. It was very real, but I took control and it's not an easy process. It's not a quick process. It's not a, that's, that's the thing that people need to understand. There is no pill that you can take. that's going to make you happy. Some people need medication and that's fine. I I did not deal well with medication. They tried me on like dozens of of different brands and like the lowest doses possible. That didn't work for me. Uh, Some people that works great for, but there's never a pill that's going to make you happy. There's never a pill that's going to really quote unquote fix you. There's no quick fix guys. It takes work. It does. And if you want to be at the top of what I call the happiness spectrum, your own personal happiness spectrum, if you want to have optimal mental health, you do have to uh, really analyze your lifestyle, your decisions, your mindset. Those things are going to affect your mental health and it's so underrated. And people often say to me, well, it's not like you can just eat a salad and get over depression. It's not like you can just you know, change your mindset and get over depression. That's absolutely true, you can't. It, but these, these different uh, categories, these different pieces, as I, as I um, call them, really do have a massive effect on your mental health. People say, oh, you can't eat a salad to, to get, uh, heal yourself from depression. Well, no, but if you're deficient in every freaking nutrient that's going to affect your mental health, that's well, gonna go exacerbate the symptoms of depression. So if you're eating crap and your body is not getting the nutrients it needs to be able to have optimal mental health, guess how that's gonna show up? If you're eating like gross food and it's causing inflammation, that's sending, like, there's a physical connection between the brain and the gut. It's called the vagus nerve. And if you're eating all this crap, it's causing inflammation. That sends messages up through the vagus nerve that are telling your brain, hey, something's wrong. And that shows up as symptoms of anxiety, depression, uh, stress, all of these different things. So they're definitely, they're, there's a lot of connections that people just don't want to come to terms with because they don't want to make the changes because they're, they, they are challenging, but damn, they're so worth it. I think people can also take the whole the topic of limitations in their professional life. I think with managers nowadays, they're saying, oh, well, you're only able to do this. And it affects people mentally where they're like, I can do so much more. Let me show you. And they're not given those opportunities. So they're trying to find ways to get around it. And I know I've definitely been in that situation where, oh, my title only says this, but look at all the stuff I'm able to do. Look at all the things I'm able to accomplish. Let me show you what I can do. Let me show you the progress I can make. And it kind of showed people like how you were with your uh, psychologist. I'm showing these people what I can do, proving them wrong. I, I, I think that title, prove them wrong or prove them how, how it was. I think that's like definitely a saying that everyone can take from if you're listening to this interview because no one should tell you what you should can and can't. We all can accomplish anything we want and we can all be able to do the things that we love doing. 
You know, I grew up, like I said, in the small town of Missouri, and you're absolutely right. Like, I was constantly told all of these things that made me not good enough, and I never would have thought that at 35 years old, I would be, you know, I, I, I accomplished my dreams. I shot for Playboy. I wrote my book. Billy Bob Thornton is endorsing my book. Like, I'm just a small town, like a little Missouri girl, and I have some, like, Golden Globe uh, winning actor that's an Oscar-winning actor that's endorsing my book, and I'm just like, holy crap, but I'm sitting here interviewing these celebrities. Uh, for my YouTube channel, and people told me it wasn't possible. When I, back in 2015, decided that I wanted, well, it was a little bit before that, I decided that I wanted to travel. And I was a single mom at the time, and people kept saying, well, you can't do that because, you know, you're a single mom, you don't have a lot of money, and you have to think about your kid, and blah, 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 you know, limitation, limitation, limitation. When 2015, not only did my son and I go on, like, this nine-day trip, nine day trip up uh, over across Arizona and then up the coast of California, uh, I ended up going to five different countries that year and I split custody like I said so he went with me too on some stuff but um, some stuff I was able to do uh, without him and I didn't do anything crazy I, I, I didn't you know go sell, sell drugs or, or become a hooker or something to make money it's just once I stopped having that limiting thought of oh I'm a single mom and I don't have a lot of money because I was working for myself I had my own uh, business I was working for myself and they were kind of right. I didn't have the money and I was a single mom. Those two things were true, but I, I, I just, I knew it was going to happen and I made it happen. And I've, I've had so many crazy adventures. I've traveled to like a dozen different countries and I've met all of these amazing people. And I'm sitting here like, I, I, I did an interview with Jamie Bennington on my YouTube channel the other day about mental health. Uh, Cause I'm just really about breaking the stigma and keeping the conversation going. And the whole time, like we're sitting, we're actually sitting there talking about law of attraction and stuff uh, about mental health. And I'm sitting there going, that's kind of funny. Cause I totally attracted you. Like I attracted this, this, um, this interview, this energy, this, this opportunity. And a lot of people look at the law of attraction as like hippie woo woo stuff, but it's not like if you, really put it in your head that the things that you want are going to happen, they're going to happen because that's the energy you're going to put out. You're going to put forth the energy and the effort to make them happen instead of the energy and the effort to make excuses for them not to happen. You're going to be looking for the opportunities. You're going to be, you know, actively creating opportunities and stuff instead of just continuously making excuses. And I will tell you, I'm nothing particularly special. I mean, I, I think I'm a special person, but I don't have any special uh, opportunities. I wasn't rich. I didn't grow up rich. I didn't grow up with some kind of special influence. You know, I didn't have special connections. My parents have special connections, but I ended up really finding this amazing, no, I didn't find, I created this amazing, amazing life because I stopped listening to all the people and the people that I did here, I just proved them wrong. I just chose to prove them wrong. I think I can relate to you in the way where you're talking to all these amazing people, celebrity, high profile names. I'm a similar way. I'm a normal guy from St. Louis. Don't really have a big name at all, but I'm being able to talk to so many great individuals and some that people I've looked up to and I'm like, wow, I'm able to talk to these people. And I think I'll, I've been going through a lot where sometimes my friends, family think that the whole podcast takes over my life. I'm just happy what I'm able to accomplish. And I want to share that with all my friends and family and show them, look what I'm able to accomplish. And I've never thought in a million years I'd be talking to people like we are right now. But the pandemic in a way kind of brought that opportunity and I took it at full force and it's been the best experience ever. And 
it's just amazing how some things happen that people look at in a negative, but we can all turn it around into a positive. I think it's insane how people will try to be like, oh, well, that's consuming your life, or oh, you shouldn't do that, or oh, you shouldn't do this. And the truth of the matter is actually, it's interesting because my newsletter that I just sent out this morning, I, I do this newsletter, um, just to kind of give people a different insight or some motivation stuff, especially during this time. I, I was talking about normal and what it, like, what it means to be normal. First and foremost, there is no normal. That's just a very weird concept. And our culture projects like this idea of this, this person that's, that has everything pulled together and that's normal. Like if you don't have everything together and you're not, you know, consistently kind and, and patient and calm, like then you're not normal. And if you don't have this eight to four job and you have kids at this age and you get married at this age and you do this and you do that and blah, 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 like you're not normal. If you don't buy into what is healthy or what is normal. Like I, I get made fun of all the time because I'm vegan and people are always like, oh, well, don't you miss eating cheeseburger? No, I really don't. Dude, I'm not missing out on life at all to not go, you know, eat a dead cow somewhere. That's just weird. But people have this whole concept of what normal is. And at the end of the day, I guess, you know, we only have the experience that we have inside of us. We're very, very limited. And the, the experience we have with other people, like of, of what we see their experience as, not only is limited because we're not in our head, but it's filtered. There is no normal. And I will say the people that are abnormal, like the freaks, like me and you, you know, <laughs> we're the happiest people. Like oh. those people that have the eight to four jobs are freaking miserable. And I, one of my favorite things to, that, I, that I realized uh, about a year ago is there's so many people that are all about keeping up with the Joneses, like keeping up with the neighbors. Do I have a nice car? Do I have a nice phone? The Joneses are in debt first and foremost, and they're probably just as miserable as like everyone else. It has absolutely nothing to do with how much stuff you have. Look, I went to Haiti in 2018, and there are people that don't even know where their next freaking meal is coming from, let alone whether or not they have the newest iPhone. And there are people there that were happy as could be yeah. because they could find, you know, reasons to be happy. They realize their life probably is limited. They're probably not going to live to be particularly old. So what's the point of sitting and moaning and groaning about it while you are alive? What's the point of, of just focusing on all the things that you don't have that's just so silly? I think each of us, we all have different ways of how we are happy. And I think we all just have to continue to support each other and keep that positive mindset and be there for each other. Not, and if someone come, is down, we gotta reach out to them and see what we can do to help them any way possible because we're at a time now where a lot of people are going through stuff, but the one thing that we can do is just support each other, be there, be a positive mind, give them a positive thought or anything. And I think we're, we'll be in a better place a year from now. Um, Absolutely. I don't mean, know what's going to happen next. That's the one thing, but I think we can see the unity of America, the world. And if that's, that's the ultimate power right there is we all get along. We're all there to support each other. Nothing will stop us. Yeah, because at the end of the day, yes, this is an uncomfortable situation, but it's not the first time that humanity has been through something like this. We've been through pandemics. We've been through elections, for sure. We've been through all of these things before, and we survived. Like, humanity survived. And yes, it, it does come with its own struggles. It comes with its own, its own fears. Unfortunately, it comes with its own losses. But I actually think I might have COVID, but I'm not going to let that consume my entire life right now. I'm not going to be like, oh my God, I'm going to be responsible about it. 
but I'm not just going to say, oh my God, my whole life is terrible and, and everything's just over because I, I potentially have this. I'm going to be responsible and take care of myself and be grateful for the things that I do have during this time. It's a time to, to really uh, check in, you know? But yeah, I think being supportive of people and I know it, it, it is really hard during this time. And, you know, there's, there's a really big uptick on, on the, the mental health struggles. I know that the, the crisis lines are overflowing with calls. I think I read one statistic where one of them had an 800% increase in calls between April of last year and April of this year. Uh, the, the addiction rates and relapse rates are through the roof. And guys, don't try and do this alone. I know that we feel very isolated and I know that we feel um, very overwhelmed right now, but you always have somebody that you can reach out to, even if it's one of us, even if it's, you know, just finding a group on Facebook, even if it's talking to a friend or family member, jump on Skype, do something, just don't let yourself disconnect right now because there, there are still people that care. And even if I don't know you personally, I can't tell you how much it destroys me every time I see in the news that someone lost their battle, that someone uh, lost their life to suicide. Even if I didn't know that person, it destroys me because I see the lost potential and I see the pain that was there. And I see all of this, all of this like, struggle that this person had and i i don't see it as oh they're weak i see it as they just couldn't fight anymore they fought as long as they could and they just couldn't fight anymore and if you're feeling you know invisible or you're feeling like a struggle right now i just want you to know that i see you and i i see your pain i get it i might not know exactly what you're going through but if, if you do need somebody to talk to please feel free to reach out um, on social media or whatever, email, whatever's, whatever's good for you, YouTube, lots of options nowadays. Uh, I, I am doing actually, I'm, I'm doing a challenge too, because I just, I want everybody to be able to have access right now to uh, mental health, um, just different mental health options and stuff, ways to improve their mental health. So I am doing a free challenge for anyone that's interested that's just looking for a little extra uh, right now to boost their happiness. And I've, I've seen a lot of results, people improving their DAS scores, even in that five days. So usually it's about $300, but I'm doing it for free right now. Uh, and there's pie, it's dancing and pie. Now what freaking like challenges can you take out there that involves pie guys? But yeah, it's, it's just a free five day challenge. And you also get a copy of my workbook, um, how to improve your productivity and boost your happiness. Cause like I said, that right there, you can download it immediately first step get yourself moving forward. Don't let yourself get stuck in this rut of, of COVID and elections and stress. And ugh, it's just, it's, it's a lot, but I really think it's important that, like you said, we stick together and we offer what we can to help each other and to help each other uh, get through this. I definitely know what it's like to be at rock bottom or in my case, way up high on that ledge. I know what that's like. Um, and I just, I, I want people to know that they aren't alone and that we can get through this and you can get through uh, whatever it is you're going through and come out on the other side. So what does the future look like you personally and professionally? What are you hoping to accomplish in the next few years? Well, I'm super excited because I landed a literary agent, so my book should be out next year. So that was a huge goal for me, something very um, big uh, that everybody can look forward to. So it's it's my story of, of the challenges and, and the overcoming and how um, Chester and how Lincoln Park had helped me uh, through a lot of that. So that's my next big one. I have quite a few uh, big, bigger features coming up uh, in Phoenix Magazine. I just did a couple for Oxygen Magazine. 
so I, I, I'm really excited about that. I've been really excited to be, to have the opportunity to not only, I mean, this is the cool thing is I always wanted to be a model. That was always something I wanted to do, but now it's like, I get to model with a voice too. So yes, my, my pictures get featured. Yes, I might land a cover, uh, but it's my story. And it's just not, here I am and I'm a pretty face. I mean, that's cool and that's great and all, but it's like, here I am, like, here's a pretty face and here's the story behind it. And here's the struggle behind it. And here's the pain behind it because we all have, you know, our own struggles. It isn't an if or who, it's a win because everybody's going to go through periods of struggle, periods of depression, periods of anxiety, periods of uncertainty. Uh, so I'm really excited for the book. I'm really excited for these features. I'm really excited for this challenge, actually. If you want to sign up for that, it's happinessboost.life. But I just want to, I'm really excited to just connect with people. I'm excited to see where everything takes me right now, you know, where, um, where the, the YouTube channel is going to go, where the book's going to go, where the program's going to go. Just everything right now is so, so um, exciting. Because 2020, I know, has been weird but you know good can come out of weird i'm weird and i think i'm pretty cool and awesome so i think that we can definitely find good in the weird and a lot of good has happened to me this year and i, I would wouldn't have felt that had i still been in the darkness i definitely would have just laid down and wallowed and self-pitied and, <laughs> and let the virus come and take hey but there's there's definitely a lot of good to be seen for someone that's listening to this interview, based on your journey and experience, what tips or advice would you give someone to overcome their obstacles, accomplish their goals, and rise to their challenge? First of all, remember that whole adage, it gets better, isn't a complete sentence. It gets better when you decide to make it better. And when you take control, you take back your power and you decide that it's time to start moving forward, that's when it's gonna get better. I remember my dad, other than the prove them wrong, which I think is the overall message of this podcast. I remember actually my dad, one of his last big pieces of advice before he passed away was don't give up hope because you never know what will happen tomorrow. And had somebody told me, I mean, look at 2020. That's the perfect example of this. And somebody told me in the beginning of 2020 that all of this was going to happen. I'd be like, <laughs> no, you're crazy. But on, on, the, on the flip side, it's like if somebody would have told me that I was going to be sitting here, you know, having this conversation with you, having a conversation with Jamie Bennington, getting my book endorsed by Billy Bob Thornton, I would have never believed any of that because I didn't believe in myself. But, you know, if you take that action, if you do move forward to making it better, the possibilities are so crazy, endless. And I promise you, you'll be pleasantly surprised at how, how things start to shift in your life. So... It does get better, but you have to take action uh, to make it better. But if you are listening to this and you're struggling, I just want to reiterate that you're, you're not alone. And there are people out here that care, even if we don't know you. Um, I certainly care. And I always think um, whenever I, I see these things on the news of that Lincoln Park song, One More Light, uh, who cares if one more light goes out? I do. I care. And there's so many people that care about you. Just reach out. We got you. We'll get you through this. Well, Amanda, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about your rise to the challenge. We all have learned so much and we're inspired by you and we're excited to see what the future looks like for you. Thank you so much for having me. It was exciting. Tune in next time to hear my next guest talk about their rise to the challenge. Remember to follow and subscribe on all major audio platforms. Make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel to see the full-length episodes in video format. What path will you take to accomplish your goals? You decide.